Hi there, I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. I'm Olivia Allen Price. I'm Jessica Placek. And this is Bay Curious. Earlier this year, we asked you for your questions on a topic that is often on our minds here in the Bay Area, homelessness. More than 1,300 of you responded. One theme that kept coming up in question after question was the role that mental illness plays in homelessness. Take this question from listener Debbie Ao. Is the situation as bad as it is because of the closure of mental health facilities in our state? A little context. She's talking about when California started emptying state mental hospitals decades ago. Did that ultimately send people out into the streets? In 2015, San Francisco's homeless count found that more than half the people experiencing chronic homelessness said that they have some form of psychiatric or emotional condition. So there are a lot of people suffering from mental illness in our streets. That's a fact, and it's serious. We are talking about people who are almost universally mad and sad, not bad. That's Jason Albertson of the San Francisco Homeless Outreach Team. He helps people in tent encampments find shelter, get to doctor's appointments, and find meals. He says he finds at least one person with severe mental illness in every tent encampment. All right, client number two. I joined Albertson's morning meeting, where his team talks about how best to address each individual's needs. With a diagnosis of agoraphobia, fear of open spaces. Mm-hmm. Do you know if she's taking heroin? I'm assuming. I mean, heroin's good for panic. So you Wait, have a, you heroin's good for panic disorders. Yeah, make, make it sense. calms you down. It's a sedative. When it wears off, it's not so easy. If you didn't catch that, they think it can be helpful for people with anxiety to self-medicate with heroin. So how did we get here? Let's first understand what mental health care used to be like. Beginning in the late 1800s, mentally ill patients were the responsibility of the state and they were kept in these large state-run hospitals. Things stayed this way for decades. So the idea that state mental hospitals were not very nice places kind of came out of World War II. Dr. E. Fuller Torrey is a psychiatrist specializing in severe mental illness. Conscientious objectors who were providing the backup staff to the state mental hospitals, and they were horrified by what they found. And what they found were hospitals that had become overcrowded and understaffed. To bring attention to conditions, they wrote articles, like this one. Patients squatted on the damp floor or perched on window seats. Some of them huddled together in corners like wild animals. Others wandered about the room, picking up bits of filth and playing with it. This bad press led to public outrage, but little action. The number of people in mental hospitals actually grew until the 1950s. But then something came along that changed everything. Thorazine, the first of the major tranquilizers, was given to several million patients within months of its introduction. And the fact that we had medication led to the idea that maybe many or most of these people could be living in the community. The process of releasing patients from the big mental hospitals is called deinstitutionalization. 
and it began across the nation under President John F. Kennedy. Almost every American family at some stage will experience or has experienced a case of mental affliction. Okay, side note, JFK had a younger sister who was mentally disabled. In her 20s, she was given a lobotomy and spent the rest of her life hidden away by the family. Back to JFK. Our next is to treat them more effectively and sympathetically in the patient's own community. In 1963, JFK did something that fundamentally changed how things worked. He pushed responsibility of the mentally ill patients from the state toward the federal government. His dream was to create thousands of community mental health centers to take care of these people. These new centers were supposed to let people leave the state hospitals safely and with care. The first patients to leave were the ones most likely to follow up on appointments and take their meds. Many, many thousands of people made their way into productive lives in their community. That's Eduardo Vega, outgoing executive director of the Mental Health Association of San Francisco. He thinks deinstitutionalization was a good thing for many people. Uh, vast majority, in fact. But less than a month after signing his idealistic plan into law, JFK was assassinated. His plan for creating federally funded community mental health centers was never fully realized. And that turned out to be a serious problem. First, Tori says, the funding was spotty. More than half the centers never opened. And worse, a number of the centers that did open were not actually interested in caring for the most severe cases. They were interested in doing psychotherapy for the worried well. For patients with serious thought disorders, the new system would be a disaster. If you think about kind of going from a place in which everything is taken care of for you, to suddenly you're expected to kind of navigate this very complex array of things that really doesn't constitute a network or a system. It's a pretty tough transition. So this is where we find ourselves when Ronald Reagan takes office as the governor of California in 1967. By then, the number of patients in state hospitals had already fallen by 40%. This is interesting to note because a lot of you wrote us asking if it's Ronald Reagan who's responsible for pushing people out of mental hospitals and onto the streets. The answer is yes and no. Yes, California's Governor Reagan did cut the budget and staff for mental health services. And no, because it was JFK who got the ball rolling on deinstitutionalization across the country. But Reagan did one more thing that really changed the picture for mentally ill folks. In 1967, he signed a law ending the practice of institutionalizing a patient against their will indefinitely. It was called the Lanterman-Petrus Short Act, or LPS. Local treatment centers where they could live at home and be outpatients. This meant that no one could be hospitalized against their will, which is a good thing. Unless you're too ill to know you should be in a psychiatric hospital. So guess what? Four years after that law went into effect, California had emptied out half its state mental hospitals. Where did all those people go? Tori was there. These people were coming out of Agnew State Hospital and they were being put in group homes. And some did very well in group homes. But many did not because they stopped taking their medication. What he's saying is a lot of those people fell through the cracks and onto the street. And when these people had mental breakdowns or exhibited psychosis, the police were usually the ones getting called. Prison psychiatrists began getting flooded with patients. And Governor Reagan had to backtrack on budget cuts. By 1980, even the federal government knew there was a problem. 
President Jimmy Carter tried to restructure JFK's community mental health centers and improve funding. But that fall, Reagan took over as president. He repealed Carter's plan and pushed responsibility of the patients back to the states. While he did provide money to the states for their programs, federal spending on mental illness fell dramatically. In the end, the path to deinstitutionalization was paved with good intentions. It was just poorly executed. Today, it's not a pretty picture. Those we see living on the streets are helped, if they are helped, by a patchwork of services, not a cohesive network. It's just people fending for themselves, sometimes using heroin for panic attacks. A big thanks to Bay Curious listener Debbie Ao for asking this week's question. And thank you, Jessica Plachek, for your reporting. No problem. Like I said at the top of the show, when we asked what you wanted to know about homelessness, we got more than 1,300 questions. Your questions were thoughtful and well-informed, and some of them were really tough. How much money does San Francisco spend on building tiny houses in the Bay Area? Why are there so many more young homeless people in the Bay Area? What do I do if I think someone needs help? We've answered these questions and more at baycurious.org. Bay Curious is made in San Francisco at KQED. Our show is produced by Vinnie Tong and me, Olivia Allen Price. Our editorial team also includes Paul Encore, Jessica Placek, and Susie Racho. Our senior editor is Julia McAvoy, and our executive editor for news is Holly Kernan. Next week... And as you look at the pile, you see a lot of cardboard. I'm Olivia Allen Price. Thanks for listening. Hi, Bay Curious listeners. Are you ready to play May's trivia game? Every month, we read a question here at the end of our episode. You can give us your answers over at our website, kqed.org slash baycurious, or just click the link in the episode description. Out of the correct answers, we'll randomly choose one lucky winner to receive a cool prize package with Bay Curious swag and Sierra Nevada goodies. Okay, our question for the month is, the world's longest-running pillow-fighting contest was held from 1966 to 2006 in what Bay Area town? Our trivia quiz is made possible by Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Good luck! Hey there, it's Olivia Allen Price, host of Bay Curious, the podcast. KQED Podcasts wants to thank listeners like you, whose support makes this podcast possible. If you want to help us continue to make great content, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcasts. And thanks.